0: This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius, with your host, Lance Fantanar.
1: Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. I've got Dave Shirazi on as a guest today, and this is going to be an interesting topic for two reasons. There's a bit of a cross correlation in the topics. Part of the reason why I wanted to get Dr. Dave Shirazi on is because he specializes in two, although not quite, you could say, obvious matches, which is sleep and also TMJ. I'll explain TMJ in a second. But then he's also got quite a wide, you could say, skill set because you've also trained in china is that correct in traditional chinese medicine i have and you are in the you could say dental and facial you could say treatment
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then you've also got the sleep part of your your practice so it's a it sounds a bit disparate in the way that you do your practice so i'd very much like to get a bit of background one about yourself why you decided to focus in these areas And then we'll talk about TMJ and sleep and also traditional Chinese medicine. So just to give people a bit of background, TMJ is, I've got to remember this correctly, temporomandibular joint. So it's basically any injury related to the jaw and most likely the injuries or the references to it will be things like locked jaw or your jaw's clicking or you've got misalignment in your jaw and there's treatment for that. So, yes. my previous experience it has been that I have had a—you could say—shoulder injury, which caused a tensional imbalance in my neck and shoulders, and that meant that I started having this clicking sensation in my jaw because it was going out of alignment. And the other thing that I found is that my, because my jaw was going out of alignment, I was trying to clamp down on my teeth to get it to fit into place and it was becoming quite uncomfortable for me because i was sleeping with an open mouth and i was having various other side effects of this so my treatment for it is because i read up on some of the treatments on tmj and i saw quite a few horror stories in that and some of the things were really quite shocking Mm -hmm. and i went down the route of trying to fix because I had an inkling of what the idea was. I thought it was a tensional issue, and I was able to use massage and stretching and various other forms of, you could say, normal treatment or non-invasive treatment to get it resolved. The after effect was that I still have points on my teeth, which the dentist picks up, where, where they say I've been grinding my teeth, but once I explain the situation, they understand it. And what people don't realize is that you can put a lot of pressure on your teeth. And you start using your teeth in an incorrect way because their line bits are completely out. And you don't realize how much this affects your your teeth and can have a long-term effect as well. So can you give people a bit of background on yourself, why you decided to go all these different routes and how that all relates together? And then we start focusing on how that affects how people think and operate and you know, the health aspect as well. So uh, please give a bit of an introduction on yourself.
0: Right. I first became a dentist, you know, straight out of college. Immediately after dental school, I studied Chinese medicine, got my master's in Chinese Mm -hmm. medicine. And immediately after that, went and got a master's in psychology, right? And Mm -hmm. I honestly say this is going to probably sound weird to you and your viewers, but I did it all for purely selfish reasons. Right, it makes me feel good to help other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before I wanted to be an acupuncturist, I just wanted to have the knowledge in case I needed it for when I have my own family, Mm -hmm. right? And when I got the master's in psychology, again, I did it for myself. I wanted to benefit myself and and help resolve some of my issues
1: before I had kids. Mm -hmm. And then, lo and behold, it seemed to help me in my practice. (laughs) In what way did the psychology? help you in your practice? What's What was the thinking behind it? What was the motivation behind that?
0: Well, the, again, the modification was, was for me, like, you mm-hmm. know, to help myself and, you know, in my life. But a lot of people, well, first of all, when you're in chronic pain, you're not happy. okay? Yeah. And that can interfere. The number one cause of insomnia is pain. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have proper pain, which we'll go into more depth later, you, you don't have all your mental capacity. You don't have the ability to resolve your issues. And this can be mitigated through meditation, but that's that's a whole other subject in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of my patients in therapy and they were under therapy and I have no desire to be a therapist, I wanna be clear. (laughs) But there are some basic fundamental points in psychology that I find very interesting and that are not being expressed to the patient. So for example, an absolute in psychology, is that nothing has any meaning whatsoever until you give it one. Meaning everything is absolutely neutral until you decide you want it to be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Okay. So, and now this is separate from what you want and what you don't want. That, that, that is separate. But so the concept of everything being neutral therefore implies that we can choose how we want to feel about something, even a past experience. Yeah, interesting. And of course, mm-hmm. how we want to handle it. So the the stories that I would tell my patients, that I would just these were just pearls. I would just tell them the story and let them run with it. I had no intention. They were already under therapy. I have no intention to to be their therapist. But some of the, I mean, if I was a therapist, the very first thing on their first day, I would tell them that, right? Mm-hmm. And the examples I would give is that in Hong Kong and I think Taiwan as well, it's polite to burp at the dinner table. Okay. Right? It means the food was so yummy, you ate fast, you got air in your stomach, and you had to burp it up, right? It's such a well-known thing that kids will fake burp to tell the mom the food was yummy. <laughs> they'll be eating, and they'll go, burp, like, just like that, right? And it's a positive. It means, thank you, mom, the food was so yummy that I had to scarf it down, right? Now, in the West, we find burping at the dinner table rude and disgusting. Right? Mm-hmm. So if we take the meta position and look at these situations, we can conclude that burping at the dinner table doesn't have a built-in meaning because in no. one part of the world, they've decided that it's a positive thing and in another part of the world, they decided it's a disgusting thing. Right? And then let's extrapolate it now to everyone on the planet, right? There's 2 billion people on the planet that believe that eating pork and shrimp is dirty and sinful. Yeah. And right next to those 2 billion, there's another billion that say, well, pork and shrimp is fine, but not cows. You can't eat cows. Okay. And then there's roughly three and a half billion that say that, well, you can eat any animal you want, just not on certain days of the year. Right. And there's between a half and 1 billion people that say that, well, you shouldn't eat any animal. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if we get we take the meta position we can conclude that eating or not eating any animal any day of the year doesn't carry a built-in meaning, right? Other than the fact that most of the time you're technically killing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big other than that, but that, but other than that, right. But you understand these sort of beliefs are what people gone to wars for. Hmm. Right. And they're completely neutral. Right. So, so sometimes they'll, they'll uh, give them the opportunity to say, well, why is that such a bad thing? It made you into a stronger person. It made you who you are today. I'm just asking. Right. Mm. And oftentimes I found that, well, growing up, everyone thought it was that. And that's how my parents were. And that's how my town was. right? Like I have a friend of mine who grew up in a coal mining town. And I don't know if you know it, but basically the treatment of coal miners is equivalent to slavery. It's yeah. Horrible.
1: Yeah, it's very hard work. Very dangerous.
0: It's not just hard work. It's not just hard work. Lots of work is hard work, but you check out at the end of the day and you go home. Right? These people were treated as slaves. Okay? Instead of giving them payment, they gave them tokens and they had to use the tokens to buy their groceries and rent and all of that. And if they wanted to get out of that lifestyle, they had to like build up wealth to get out of being a coal miner. It was horrible was absolutely horrible. And I don't even know how it was ever legal, but, but they but they did it. And I asked my friend, I said, why was this sort of thing allowed to happen? And because the men are putting their lives in danger, they're getting black lung, the the the, the family is losing the dad at a younger age. They're not making much money. You know, why don't they just I mean you're not a tree. Why don't you get up and move to another state if you need to, right? And, and and it was very interesting, even though he's an educated doctor and he moved out of that town, he still was like, wow, we would never even consider questioning their motives. We would never even consider all we thought about was their profits. Like we just thought, like, oh my god, if someone if Joe dies, how are we gonna go and mine the coal? Like they they their their thought process was so one way. And they were just, that's how you just, that's what you believed, right? That's just what everyone believed. So my patients would say, you know, in a similar context, well, we all believe that. We all thought it was, was, that was a bad thing. Other parts of the world, they find that it's a good thing. And you seem to come out of it really great, right? And it's your choice, what you want to think about it for the rest of your life. And that's it. That's really where I, where I leave it with them insomnia is also an issue with me but my job is really to help them get out of pain and the the secondary effect with for, with the acupuncture for pain and insomnia is real it, it's a beneficial
1: yeah I'm getting back to the TMj side because yeah. one I've had the discomfort and I've had the experience yes albeit to a, a limited degree and it was something that was fixable without mm-hmm. any intervention
0: well let me give you my thoughts on your experience. So first of all, we would consider your TMJ, if you will, disorder experience as an acute one, right? I almost never treat acute cases; they're almost all chronic cases. But you know how we label the vertebra C1, yeah. C2, C3, C4. I consider the TMJ. As, I'm not the only one. We can. I consider the TMJ as C0, like the next cervical vertebra. Mm-hmm. And just like someone can have a chronic back problem that eventually becomes a neck and shoulder problem. You can have a jaw problem that can throw your neck and shoulders. Mm. out, Right. And when I'm, when I speak at conferences, I'll give a demonstration. It's usually to dentists because dentists think that the bite is just the bite. And there's not it's not related to anything else. Mm. Right. And the example that I'll tell, I'll tell them to sit on their chair at the end of their chair, so their back is not supported and just tap their teeth. Right. And as they tap their teeth, feel their bite, Okay. And then assuming they don't have like a neck problem, a cer- cervical fusion, whatever, to just tilt their head all the way back and then tap their teeth again, and they'll notice that their bite changed. Right. And so I'll tell them, I go, who, who here, you know, experienced the bite change? And most of the people raised their hand. And I said, did any of you guys have orthodontics just now? And then reverse orthodontics to get your bite back to where it was. They're like, no. I go. So you subluxated your neck, which subluxated your jaw, and then changed your jaw. it changed your bite, right? So it is. It it is related. Mm. It is related.
1: Yeah. I mean that. That to me was a fascinating insight when the realization hit that everything is very much connected. I mean, it reminds me of the song "Jawbone" or "To the Heel," but the toe bone is connected to the foot bone to yeah. the foot bone. and. You know, it makes you realize that that it's all interconnected. And that to me was probably the biggest insight into making sure and paying attention to stretching and why stretching is so important. I realized it from previous injuries and other issues that I've had, and I knew it was important. That's one of the reasons why I went down that road. But for me, the other big driver was I did not want to go down the road of having invasive and potentially operations because some of those stories and the and the results that people had was just it broke my heart to see the problems that people had because of the some of the treatments and some of them were quite obvious from car accidents or any kind of other physical damage or that happened at the time so that was a completely understandable reason why there was that that kind of injury. But some of the others, if you think of some of the treatments that people were having, they were having mouthpieces put in to try and force the jaws like, well, there's no way that you can force a jaw to change its position. All you're doing is that you're putting pressure on the whole mechanism over here. There's stress and other points which are pushing the whole thing out of out of out of proportion. You're trying to reverse engineer the whole change, which is never going to work in that regard.
0: In surgery, that's a problem. So when I went into dental school, I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to be an oral Mm -hmm. surgeon. And I was a dental assistant for eight years before I went to dental school. And the last like four or five years of being a dental assistant, I worked for periodontists, like gum surgeons, right? Mm -hmm. But I wanted to be an oral surgeon. And the very first semester was, you know, cadaver dissection. And I had my own scalpel and there was me and five girls on the same cadaver and they let me do almost all the dissection. It was wonderful. And all of our instructors were PhD anatomists. They weren't dentists because our focus was anatomy. And they would show me, this is 1996, they would show me sliding film like lateral Ceph of someone who had jaw surgery with all the bolts, you know, in them. And I would ask them, I go, how does the patient function like that? Right. You know, because if you have bolts put in your back, right. And it's hard to function. Well, you sit down, you Mm -hmm. lay down, you, you take Advil, you, whatever it is you do to cope. You can't do that with the jaw, right. That you use the jaw all the time you swallow two to 3000 times a day. That is a survival mechanism. You will always do that. And if it's not functioning, you're going to feel it two to 3000 times a day. Mm. So I'm like, why, why, how, how does this person function? Why did they do that? And they were just like, we don't know. I go, what do you mean? We don't know. Cause I mean, it's dental school is a branch of medical school. You're supposed to do things based off of research. Right. Mm. And they're like, well, We don't have a lot of research on jaw surgery. They're sort of winging it, right? And I thought, okay, well, this is from him. And I thought, okay, well, I don't want to be a surgeon anymore, right? And and one of the reasons I didn't want to be, I was very naive. I thought that if you're a surgeon, you can't say I don't do that surgery. I was so naive. I thought, I used to make jokes and say, you know, if you go to a root canal specialist, he can't say that root canal is too hard. Those roots are too curved. I can't, I can't do that one to give it to somebody else. Like you can't do that as a root canal specialist, right? But actually they do do that. But their actual words might be, uh, this tooth is unsavable. Go ahead and pull it, right? And, and, the, and most oral surgeons don't do that surgery, that orthognathic surgery. Most oral surgeon focused on wisdom teeth and implants, Right? But again, I, I didn't. I wasn't thinking that. So when I came out of dental school, my focus was more orthodontics than anything else. Hmm. Just because I just I was just turned off by that whole surgical option. And oh, yeah. some people do need it. If you add severe degenerative condyles and your bone on bone, and you can only open this much, sometimes total joint replacement surgery is the only option. And it will help with being able to open wider, like to forty millimeters. But it's not. In terms of pain, I haven't seen a consent a consensus of a study that shows that patients have outcome good outcomes for pain with jaw surgery. Right? And the ones that do, it's great, you thank you're lucky stars. And the ones that don't, their quality of life goes down to zero. So it's a risk.
1: Well, it's a big impact
0: if you think about it. It's an unbelievable impact. Yeah. Mm. We're kind of cavalier about it. And, uh, you know, me being a general dentist focusing on pain and sleep, I'm looking for more functional ways to help the situation with appliances. You know, maybe one for day, maybe one for night, maybe acupuncture, whatever the person might need. I don't even employ Botox in my practice because if someone really wants Botox, they can go to a neurologist and get it covered by insurance and see a neurologist. I'm not I don't want to give them drugs for the rest of their lives that are better people than me to do that. And they know how to read the blood work before you give the medication. That, like I said, oftentimes they'll take medical insurance, so it's a non issue. I'd rather refer those people who
1: do what they do best. And I'll just continue to do what I do best. How does this sleep You could say treatment The factor into, I know from a pain perspective, it has a big impact because pain is one of those things that can be, depending on how chronic it is, how bad it is, very much affects your ability to sleep and rest. So how did that part of it come into your practice and your focus?
0: So at first, my focus was on chronic pain, and then the realization came very quickly that the number one reason outside of just emotional stress of why we clench our teeth Mm -hmm. has to do with what we call upper area resistance syndrome, which is a form of sleep apnea, right? Basically, anything that agitates our autonomic nervous system while we're sleeping will cause us to clench.
1: Okay, can you just explain that a bit more?
0: Yeah. So, for example, so, you know, autonomic nervous system is parasympathetic and sympathetic. It's all the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is like the big part of the parasympathetic stimulation, yeah. Yeah. So when we sleep, we're supposed to be in parasympathetic the majority of the time where we do our rest and repair. And there is one particular stage of sleep called delta, where Mm -hmm. we get almost 100% of our growth hormone that we need for physical repair. That's Mm -hmm. all comes from one stage of sleep. And then of course REM is where we get our mental and emotional processing. And now we're finding that the lymphatic system in the brain clears out the beta amyloid plaques during rep. Right. So we need those stages for repair. You follow? Mm -hmm. But now talking about the autonomic nervous system, if you're, if you do anything that agitates it, it's one of your reflexes is to clench. And when we clench, we don't just clench here. We clench like this. Yeah? Yeah. It's a whole upper trapezius form of clenching. Right. And grinding. So if you have a food intolerance, an IgG food intolerance to, let's say, wheat and dairy and you sleep and you eat a slice of pizza, you're going to clench your teeth that night. Really? Right. Yeah. It's If you have parasites in your gut, you'll clench your teeth that night. If someone cuts you off on the freeway and it bothers you, right, you'll clench your teeth that night. And if you have sleep apnea, you'll clench your teeth
1: at night most of the time. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, but really, not connected those aspects together. I I had not been aware of that connection before. I know the the whole rest and digest, and I've looked into the vagus nerve and how it functions, especially when it comes to the psychological stress-based factors. And I know the You could say link with vagal tone and health and just stress reduction and all of those aspects from just overall, you could say functional, you know, management of of overall health. But I have not been aware of this whole connection with sleep and the clenching. That's really a very, very, very interesting connection, which I've not been aware of.
0: And it's one of those things that the worse it gets, the worse it gets, Right. So yeah. let's say you have a form, a mild form of sleep apnea, and you clench your teeth. And then after a while of clenching your teeth, you end up getting a TMJ problem. And then it goes from being acute and mild to being chronic. And it affects everything you do, eating, talking, chewing, swallowing. And then that it becomes a chronic condition. It could also be associated with tension type and migraine type headaches. It could be associated with charge of neuralgia with uh, ear pain, tinnitus, the list goes on. It's a very, very long list with diseases associated with TNJ disorder. But then now that becomes another factor to disturb your sleep, which then further makes you clench more, which then further kicks you out of those deeper stages of sleep. So it's one of those things that the worse it gets, the worse it gets.
1: Yeah, self-perpetuating problem.
0: Well, yeah, and then there is a stigma in dentistry about TMJ patients. They -hmm. have this belief that they're all crazy, right? I don't know if you, in your research, if you looked at this, but there is a very big stigma in dentistry of that. And and I hope that's being changed, but you have to understand if you're not getting a good night's sleep and you're in chronic pain and everywhere you go to, their only solutions are more drugs, Botox, or some surgery, that only just puts a dent in it. It doesn't resolve the issue. Mm -hmm. It just puts a dent in it. You're not going to be a happy camper. No. Right? So the question is, you know, were they crazy and then they had TMJ? Or did they have a TMJ problem, you know, ruined their sleep, and then they became crazy? Which one is it? Right? So, and I'm certainly not qualified to diagnose someone as mentally stable or not. Uh, but I can always make a recommendation if I
1: feel they need it. Hmm. Let's go back to the sleep part of it. Yeah. So there's something else which I found to be really an interesting topic which I'd not been aware of. That is, you've you've got a stated over there, being breastfed is integral to developing good um, TMJ health. Yes, and straight teeth and also airways. How how does that work? Why do you say that? So when we
0: look at skulls prior to the Industrial Revolution, they had wide palates, which means they had wide noses and small sinuses and nice big developed jaws. Mm-hmm. Okay. They also breastfed for three to five years. Okay. And they didn't have anything processed. So as soon as the kid got teeth, they got him or her chewing on food, which Mm -hmm. that muscle activity activates the mandible to grow more in this direction. The swallowing mechanism, if you're doing it correctly, the tip of the tongue goes right behind the two front teeth Mm -hmm. to that little bump called the spot. It's Actually, that's what it's called. And it's supposed to go like this, right? And the reason that we swallow like that is when the nipple is in the baby's mouth, the tip of the tongue pinches the base of the nipple, squeezes the nipple against the roof of the mouth to squeeze the milk down the throat, Mm -hmm. yeah? And that's how we're supposed to swallow, and we're supposed to do that our whole lives. And when we do that, when our bones are soft and malleable, then the arches develop, right? And the wider the palate is, the, the more downward and forward growth of the mandible you're getting. And when this, this is your condyles, when it grows downward and forward, it develops a lot more. And all the nerves behind it aren't being pitched when we have a recessive jaw, right? So when children are uh, bottle-fed, instead of using their tongue to properly swallow, they're putting the bottle in their mouth and they're sucking on it like this, right? Mm-hmm. And two things are happening. One, you're suppressing the tongue action. You're holding the tongue down. Two, you're using your muscles to bring your bones in, right? So you get what's called a narrow mouth, narrow palate, and a high arch, right? Which then leads to small nasal passages and deviated septums.
1: So it does that then have a long-term effect where it causes issue with snoring and
0: for dust. for two reasons one mammals are supposed to breathe exclusively out of their nose even when running okay mouth is for eating and talking only okay mm-hmm. so when someone has a narrow palate and a high arch and therefore a small nose if anything gets in there like dust or a food sensitivity causes a swelling of a turbinate they now can't breathe through their nose And they have to breathe through their mouth and they have to posture their mouth like this. And they actually, if that happens early on, that's a developmental problem called long face syndrome, right? Mm Because the posturing of the muscles like this gets the jaw to develop down like that,
1: like hanging
0: down, right? And the first few millimeters of opening. So when we open our jaws, the first few millimeters, it rotates and then it slides. So it's in the socket, we or not in the socket, we're just in front of the socket. We rotate and then we glide. So when we rotate those first five, 10 millimeters of rotation, the jaw actually goes backwards. So then imagine someone sleeping on their back, they can't breathe through their nose and now they have to mouth breathe and they're pulling this number, right? That, I mean, that's like the textbook picture of someone snoring. Yeah. And then sometimes mouth breathing and the loss of entitled CO two can be a reflexive reason why we clench all together. So then that compounds it.
1: Explain that a bit more for me, please. Why? How? How did you come to that? Uh, oh, it's not it's not my it...
0: conclusion. That's from textbook. That's from medical physiology book. So okay. So everyone is so focused on our blood oxygen levels because oxygen is very important. Mm-hmm. We only have, but I think two oxygen sensors in our body, sensors, but we have hundreds of CO2 sensors in our body, right? And the importance of CO2 is that there needs to be a threshold of CO2, like we have to be between 38 millimeters and 45 millimeters of mercury so that the oxygen can liberate itself from our hemoglobin, right? If, if we have too much entitled CO2, that could be death, okay? And if you have too little CO2, sometimes people will actually, like, pass out, right? Yes. Like, you've seen people hyperventilate. And they
1: pass out, yeah.
0: They pass out. So that's like the body's physiology telling them, okay, well, if you're going to hyperventilate, we're going to knock you out and recapture your normal breathing and your normal entitled CO2. So there's another form of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea. That's where your brain tells your body not to breathe, right? And yes, it can be caused by uh, morphine overuse or or addiction, but the majority of the time it's caused by mouth breathing because we're outgassing too much CO2 and the body literally stops us from breathing. Like there's no activity. Like when someone has obstructive sleep apnea up here, you can actually see, you know, the intercostal muscles trying to work trying Mm -hmm. to get the air trying to suck the air down right through the obstruction with central there's no attempt right because it's a deliberate attempt to build the co2 because the metabolism is still carrying on to Mm -hmm. build the co2 back up so that the body can have its oxygen from the proper co2 and then the other aspect of that is when we outgas too much CO2, that shifts us from our autonomic nervous system, from parasympathetic to sympathetic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of the elephant in the room. It's sort of the elephant in the room. And, and I hate to say it, a very small percentage of doctors, even specialists, even talk or
1: know about it. Why is there such a big gap in this, or knowledge gap when it comes to this thing?
0: I have a distant family member. That went to USC Medical School, right? Very mm-hmm. highly acclaimed medical school. He literally, I asked him, "Are they teaching you anything about diagnosis these days?" And even before that, I first, I first asked him, "Do they teach you anything about sleep? Did you have one class in in medical school for sleep?" He said, "Absolutely zero hours. I got zero hours of sleep." So something that we do one-third of our lives, something that we do where we get all our growth hormone and all our mental-emotional resolution, they have zero training. So they don't even ask, hey, how was your sleep? Right? And then the diagnosis part, he said, th- this is where their training comes in. I said, okay, what are they teaching you for far as di- diagnosis? He goes, well, I do case studies all day long. Case I, I, I'm like overwhelmed with case studies. I go, fantastic. Give me an example of a case study. And he goes, well, patient comes in. She's got a constellation of issues going on. Turned out to be hyperthyroidism. I said, excellent, doctor. Why did she have hyperthyroidism, right? And he had like a blank look on his face. And I said, well, the patient didn't have hyperthyroidism 10 years ago for most of her life. Why is she in, her, in your chair at the age of 40? with hyperthyroidism and again he had a blank look on his face and my wife went to usc pharmacy school and she's like you know dave is asking about the origin of disease right and he still had a blank look on his face he didn't know where i was coming from so i kind of went into professor mode and i said okay so what are some of the known causes of hyperthyroidism and he goes well it could be genetic i go okay less than 10 percent. what else he goes it could be iodine deficiency very good And his wife says, well, what's the answer? I go, he just gave me the answer. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he goes, iodine deficiency, really? And I'm like, well, the blood work shows she has hyperthyroidism, right? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, if you know that hyperthyroidism can be caused by an iodine deficiency, why wouldn't you test for it? Because the alternative is to take out her thyroid or a portion of it and put her on Synthroid for the rest of her life. And the thyroid hormones guide the female hormones, the estrogen, progesterone, and their monthly cycle. So these women go through six months of hell until they figure out the right dose that matches their hormones, right? So I said, I mean, I mean what if that was your wife? She'll be a psycho for six months while she's trying to. you're trying to figure out the right dose for her, right? Why not just try to find the functional reason why, right? And it's not his fault. He's a very smart guy, very, very smart guy. They don't train them to think that way. They have the knowledge of physiology. They have the knowledge of structure. They have the knowledge of psychology, but they don't actually implement it. They implement it in the context of which medication can I use, you know, that's appropriate here? Does that make sense?
1: It does, but it's, to me, incredibly disturbing, because it means there's no real attention being paid to what are the actual factors that are causing the problem.
0: I agree. I understand there are times when it's appropriate. Like, like if you have a bacterial pneumonia, mm-hmm. it is cured, literally cured, with a broad spectrum antibiotic like penicillin. Yeah. Okay. If you have, type, you know, type one diabetes, in, I mean, these people until insulin was created on mass scale, these these people, even children, would drop dead. Hmm. It was horrible, right? So insulin will help the diabetic, right? Everything else, though, is like an in between problem between health and that. We have an issue that there's a functional cause and that we need to find a solution for it right and doctors will know this like many if ask anybody ask any adult that went in to see their doctor with a medium sized problem wasn't major wasn't you know nothing but it was a problem they wanted to fix right and ask them like okay so why do i have this and how do i get rid of it and what are lifestyle change what what do i got to do and a lot of them especially in hospitals are very honest they'll say you know, we don't have a fix for that. But you know what? If it becomes a stroke or it becomes a heart attack or something, we know just come in right away. We know what to do when you have that, right? So th- they're very good at saving your life. If you have a heart attack, you don't go see your homeopath. Yeah. Right? If you're into a car accident, you don't right away go see your chiropractor. Right? You, you There's a time and a place to to have, you know, traditional allopathic medicine.
1: But ju- they just don't teach a functional approach. That is very disconcerting. That's probably why a lot of people feel that doctors, one, either aren't listening or they, they tend to be misdiagnosed or they quacks or there's there's a very, you know, it gives people a very bad perception of what a health practitioner is in that regard. Which yeah. is
0: And it's not even their fault. No. It's not even their fault. They're just doing what they were taught. Right? But they have the intelligence; they have the knowledge to just say, "Okay, what if I learned something new? What if I took courses from another field?" I'll give you a personal example of what happened to me. When you know, when I I told you when I came out doing orthodontics, I did functional orthodontics. So we mm-hmm. expanded palates, we brought the mandible downward and forward in these kids, right? And it was we didn't know. That the kid had ADD and bedwetting because of their sleep apnea. We didn't know, and that way that was me. I had ADD, ADHD, and bedwetting as a kid. I had sleep apnea, and even with a whole family full of doctors, I no one could help me because they just didn't just didn't know, right? But so we treated it. Kid got well, and it was it was way more satisfying than doing general dentistry for me. That's why I mm-hmm. I did it. I didn't I don't dislike general dentistry. I just think this is way more rewarding. Right? So, when I switched into treating the parents, I didn't do it orthodontically. I used appliances. And it was just emerging about 15 to 18 years ago. It was emerging the correlation between sleep apnea and TMJ disorders. We still didn't have the research that said that the reason why we clench can be caused by the apnea itself. We didn't know that then. We just knew that there was a relationship. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna immerse myself into these sleep apnea courses, right? And 90 plus percent of them in dentistry were basically courses to sell an appliance, right? They just said, oh, just stick this in the patient's mouth and pull their jaw forward. And it's like, what, (laughs) really? Is, Is that it, right? What about the jaw? You can't do that on a TMJ patient, right? And they don't know. They're like, well, we don't know about the TMJ patient. We don't know, right? So I said, you know what? I'm going to take courses in, in other professions and see what I find. Hmm. So, of course, my first thing to take was medical courses on snoring and sleep apnea. And they were all, I mean, they were either CPAP courses or they were drug model courses, right? Nowadays, they have products that they surgically put on your hypoglossal nerve to do, be like a pacemaker so that mm-hmm. whenever you snore, your tongue vibrates, it electroshocks your tongue so it stays stiff and doesn't fall back, right? But so that, that wasn't around when I was studying it. But everything else being a drug or CPAP model, I have no interest in that. So then I took a course for what's called sleep technology which mm-hmm. are the people that do the conduct the sleep study on you they put the leads yeah. and all that and they measure your sleep overnight in a sleep lab and these courses were amazing they talked about the practical problems of sleep because these sleep technologists they are like they're like superheroes right they are doing the equivalent of 20 blood tests in one night on a patient in real time Well, the amount of data you get in an overnight PSG far out exceeds any data that you get from any blood test. The, The knowledge is immense between your brain waves, your heart activity, your autonomic nervous tone, your heart rate variability, all of that. It's all, you know, captured in one night. And they would talk about how all the things they had to do to manage these issues. So, so then I thought, okay, well, this is a treasure trove of information. So I just dived into those courses and loved it. And I even went to the board of uh, polysomnography and said, Hey, I'd like to be a licensed sleep technologist. And the president was like, so you want to be, you want to own your own sleep lab? I said, no, no, not at all. I go, I, I I just want to show my peers that I know more than just how to make appliances. Right? And, uh, and he actually was the one that really urged me to go and, and have my own sleep lab. And I do have one and it's dedicated to research, but the point being was I was willing to go outside my profession to look for things that work so that we can help him. Like, you, you know, one time, and this is, forgive me, this is a long time ago. I was talking to a physician. I said, Hey, your patient so-and-so came to see me for the slowing and sleep apnea. I'm going to send you the record. Patient gave me permission. Uh, Just want to let you know that the patient also has hypertension. And one of the known causes of hypertension is sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Right? And he got defensive. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I go, yeah. He goes, and? I go, and what? That's it. So I I invite you. So while we help to resolve the, your patient's sleep apnea, you may want to wean them off of the you know medications that they're on, like the diuretics or the calcium channel blockers. We need to mm. you know start weaning off of that. And, and his attitude changes. with, oh okay. Uh, I thought you were trying to sell me something. I'm not you anything. I mean it, these poor people have to deal with drug reps on a daily basis, I think. Yeah. But but yeah, like so we have plenty of research for both type two diabetes and hypertension, oh, and also anxiety and depression. That if they have those symptoms, those diseases, and sleep apnea, and they get it successfully treated with either CPAP or an oral appliance, there's a great resolution of their type two diabetes, hypertension.
1: Anxiety or depression. Like we see it. It's not a secret, but it's not well known. Just diving back into sleep apnea uh, as a whole, obviously, snoring is a very big problem for a number of people. A lot of their connections are to obvious, you know, weight issues, because that does have a big impact. For sure. What are the common causes of? snoring and that can be remediated quite easily by everybody that does have an issue with snoring because obvious reasons the big joke is that you know the woman is staying awake while the husband is lying there snoring like a buffalo but the truth of the fact is that both men and women snore just equally as much for whatever reason so what are the most common you could say easy to fix remedies because there's a lot of devices out there There are a lot of treatments which are incredibly bogus so what, what is the best advice that you've got for people that do have an issue with snoring? How can they fix so, it and what is uh, what I mean, is-
0: it's going to vary from person to person, but the very first thing that you can do as an individual to help you sleep, uh, have you not had snoring, is to, one, make sure that your nasal passages are clear, mm-hmm. right? So if you want a neti pot, if you want a nasal spray, just really clear out your nose, okay? You can have an air filter in your room to help stop your nose from clogging up, right, mm-hmm. from dust and dander. If you are in a very dry, arid part of the country, then you can have a humidifier in the room to help moisten the air. That will help. Mm-hmm. We're about to conduct a study right now on an oral appliance that does nothing but tone up the upper pharyngeal airway mm-hmm. so that it helps build up their uh their tone so that they don't snore right there are some wind instruments there's a few studies out of australia where you've heard of the didgeridoo yeah yeah so there's a number of studies i think they're now half a dozen where they take patients with sleep apnea and they teach them how to do didgeridoo and which is very difficult i have didgeridoos and the, mm-hmm. cir- the circular breathing is very very challenging but when you use that and then you do a follow-up sleep study, it reduces your acne by fifty percent. So
1: that's, that's quite a dramatic reduction.
0: That's a dramatic reduction. Yeah. And even myofunctional therapists, the ones that teach you how to swallow normally, mm-hmm. even myofunctional therapy can reduce your acne by fifty percent, just organically.
1: Just explain that a bit more about changing how you're swallowing. How can people learn to do that? What's it what's the steps with, with that? What's what's the reason behind that? It's not just changing how you swallow. Mm -hmm. It's using
0: your swallowing muscles. Mm -hmm. You follow? So if your tongue, remember I talked about like your tongue should be like that when you swallow? Yeah. So if your habit is to suction cup your tongue to the roof of your mouth, okay, your tongue being anchored into your mandible, if you suction cup your tongue to the roof of your mouth, you're pulling your mandible up to the roof of your mouth. Mm -hmm. That make sense? Yep. which means you're pulling it up and forward, not down and back. Okay. Which is where apnea and snoring occur. Make sense? Yeah. So if you work with a biofunctional therapist or you do your homework that a biofunctional therapist gives you, you should be working on those muscles. So snoring and sleep apnea is predominantly caused by a loss of neuromuscular tone. Just as simple as that? Yeah, the majority of the time. I mean, obviously, you could have nasal obstruction. Mm-hmm. You could have enlarged tons of adenoids. You could have a growth in your throat. I mean, and you could even have like cervical subluxations that get in the way of your airway. But by and large, the vast majority of the time, the number one cause is a loss of neuromuscular tone, right? And that's why if if just being overweight is not enough reason to have snoring and sleep apnea.
1: Yeah, but okay. if
0: you have a loss of neuromuscular tone and you're overweight, then now we're talking the issue is now logarithmically enhanced.
1: Yeah. So it's a compound effect. For
0: sure. Because basically the point of the neuromuscular tone is to withstand the collapse. hmm Right? And if you have that on top of it, you have fat or edema around here or a huge tongue, then that's just more weight for your neuromuscular tone to withstand, and it just closes off.
1: Okay. Well, there's a lot of areas which I have not had time to look into. So this has really been probably one of the most interesting conversations I've had about this whole area for quite a while. So it's definitely been a, an eye-opener. And how's the traditional Chinese medicine added to your knowledge when it comes to these uh, to the treatment, especially when it comes to sleep and also, you know, your your dental practice or your your oral treatment?
0: Yeah. And you should know, my website is tmjla.com.
1: Mm-hmm. I have
0: two offices in the LA area, so if you need to find me. I chose to limit my practice to pain, sleep, and orthodontics. I don't okay. do any general Yeah. So the acupuncture and herbs help people with chronic pain, for example. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, they also help calm the nervous system down, just mm-hmm. organically, just in how they work they calm the nervous system down and when they do that well guess what that helps you get to sleep better that yes. helps you stay asleep which is another factor so they're all helpful things they're all they work in harmony you know chinese medicine is focused on the the entire
1: individual not just one part of them so it's very much a holistic approach of taking a lot more considerations or a lot more factors into consideration, not just a single symptom or a collection of symptoms. Exactly. And has that change started perpetuating through to other parts of the profession or is it still only isolated pockets of people that are championing this approach?
0: Well, there is another. So my office is one of over 65 throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And we have them all over the United States, Canada, all over Australia, New Zealand, England, Bahrain, Dubai. And uh, we now have our second center just this year. We have a second center who also became an acupuncturist.
1: That's fantastic.
0: I believe he's in Sydney.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I had nothing to do with it. <laughs>
1: he,
0: he did it completely on his own. God bless him. And he did a great job. And he's an amazing practitioner. But I think more and more people are kind of looking into it. And now we have research that we can support our beliefs, yeah. right? And I have no problem shaming the ignorant or those with confirmation bias. I've wasted a great many hours on Facebook. I, I a few years ago, I talked to someone who I consider a complete embarrassment to my profession, who thought that cupping, you know, you've heard of cupping, yeah. was like quackery. Right? And so I said, oh, okay, well, I'm a clinical researcher. So here is a meta analysis with 500 research articles in the citation. Okay? And I go, do you have a study that shows it doesn't work or it's bad or has negative consequences? And he literally showed me YouTube videos of some jerk, you know, being skeptical. And he showed me like crackwatch.com. Or something like that, and it was like, um, "Yeah, uh, we're talk. We're doctors, right? You're a dentist, right?" I go, "You're not. You're not the dental assistant. You're the dentist, right?" He goes, "Yeah." I go, "Well, I'm showing a research study with 500 citations. I can't do better than that. Do you have something that it shows that it doesn't work, is not safe, is not efficacious? Do you have anything like that?" And all he had was YouTube videos. It was embarrassing. It was absolutely embarrassing. Right? And this yeah. is another. Day. And it was just like back and forth. He's like, "Well, it looks like we're not going to agree." I go, "Yeah, damn right, we're not going to agree." <laughs> you get, <laughs> you've given no evidence to to support your belief; just your confirmation yeah. bias, right? But so that still exists. But you know, in in America, we're very commercially minded. We're very money focused when it comes to business. So. As more and more people demand a more holistic approach to their problems, more and more people will rise up to the task and learn. And the ones that don't, the ones that are just kind of like this, right, they will, you know, retire or die. But what the real problem in our profession, if you want my honest, you know, candid opinion, is... In the academic world, there is so much confirmation bias, so much like reticence for growth and evolution that when those heads retire or die, that will be the greatest boom in our profession and all of history. When younger people who are evidence-based and are open to looking at the evidence start to become heads of departments, leaders in the industry, then we'll see more and more open-mindedness. And, and of course, the public will match that.
1: Yeah. I think the big thing for me is when I started doing a lot more of my own personal research and reading into medical research to actually look at what was the factual information behind a lot of research. It suddenly opened up a whole new world because you were able to look at a number of studies and look at the way things, what the actual truth is, because you can pick out errors, you can pick out truths, you can look at patterns, you can look at just simple things. How often do they correlate? Is there meta-analysis? You know, how much correlation is there? How much does it support the research? If the research doesn't support it, then there's no real reason to carry on beating a dead horse. And there's so much information that you can get out of the research just by doing a bit of a, you know, scratch test is like, well, how big is the study? How much correlation is there with other things? How well is the article supported with the citations? Can it be verified in other research and what other areas can support it or discount it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting because you're absolutely right. And things like Botox and the use of migraine, they have done large meta-analysis on the use of Botox to treat migraine, and they found that it doesn't work for migraine. Okay? So you would think this would be something that neurologists on a whole would shy away from. You would think that insurance wouldn't want to pay for it if that was the diagnostic code they use. But if you ask a neurologist, I'd bet you well over 90% of them are still doing Botox for migraine.
1: Yeah, but I sometimes suffer from migraine. And for me, the best and simplest way that I can treat it is one, because I know it's a tension, it's down to tension. Mm -hmm. It can be. And because if I don't, do anything with that, then I know I'm going to have a problem for a number of days because the tension just builds and it just sticks around for an extensive period of time. And the only way that I that I can treat this is do the basics, massage stretching, mm-hmm. you know, do some of the things that I know work for me. But it's paying attention, take a look at other factors. Is there any stress related issues which are causing me to either not sleep properly or to that's that's impacting me that I wasn't aware of. And there's, there's a number of things that can be looked into. There's so many factors you look in, but each person needs to take a certain amount of responsibility to identify what their triggers are. Yeah. And that's the other thing that needs to be taken into consideration is how responsible people are for their own health and their wellness. Yeah. And that's – I mean, we've not even touched on the, the mental wellness and the mental health aspect because, obviously – Sleep deprivation has got a big impact on just cognitive ability and mental health because you're not able to just deal with life's day-to-day stresses on a number of levels. So overall, especially during the whole COVID uh, pandemic issue, the stress factors that are affecting people Mm -hmm. has a huge impact on people's just mental resilience because stress increases, they're sleeping poorly, then you've got this knock-on effect of a number of other things that affect them. You know, their cortisol levels increase, their, you know, heart rate goes up, their blood pressure goes up, and a number of other things start, you know, having an impact on just general health. So it's it, it, there are a number of factors which all interrelate but need to be taken into consideration. But it's, a, it's just, it becomes very complex. It, it, it
0: certainly does. It certainly does. One of the recommendations I tell my patients is to not watch the news. (laughs) Right? And I've been saying this for 15 years because it's just bad news. Right? It's like there's very little mention of the good that's happening. Right? There's very little mention of the progress that's happening. Hmm. All you hear is you're bombarded with is just the negative news. And if you repeat something enough, people just accept it as fact. Right? So I, I invite them to just, actually, I'll tell you, right, it's a true story. I once went to a conference and I carpooled with my neurologist friend. And it was American uh, Academy of American Headache Society. And we would have conversations on the way, right? And I, and I would tell him about how I help people with migraines by treating more of the source and how his profession is more about symptom management and very unscientific and everything. And I talked to him a few years later. He was talking about how much he loves being a dad. He's got these two wonderful daughters. And he goes, now, Dave, you, you were on the phone. He said, you know, you told me something on that trip that really changed my life. I said, oh, and I'm thinking, oh, he was listening as I was ranting about <laughs> functional medicine and not just treating with drugs and all of that, right? And I said, oh, what was it? He goes, you told me to stop watching the news. And I did, and I feel so much better. <laughs> because there's nothing you can do about all the stuff they talk about, right? And it just makes your whole attitude so much better.
1: Yeah. It does. It does make a make a big difference because it's not reinforcing your know, negative stereotypes and news and everything else. And it gives you a bit of – it gives you ability to pay attention to your own life and focus on yourself a bit more. Dave – it's been a fascinating discussion. I think we can probably have a another in-depth uh, discussion on, on various other topics, especially on the mental health side of things. I think we've not even had a chance to discuss that.
0: Well, I'd the, be delighted.
1: I'd be delighted if you would like to do this again. I would love to have you back again at a at another opportunity because <laughs> there's there's so many other areas which I think I can you know dive into, and it's been fascinating to learn from you because there's very, it's to me, this has been an, an unknown area and because I've had a previous issue with TMJ, I applaud you for the work that you do and also your very refreshing approach to everything. I think it's uh, fantastic to see. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I look forward to it again. Have a fantastic day and uh, I wish you all the best with your, your plans and your future. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me and asking such
0: great hard-hitting questions. Thank you very much. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the
1: podcast.